0: suicide bombing that killed eight Americans at a CIA base in eastern Afghanistan. It's believed to be one of the deadliest attacks in the agency's history and this morning the Taliban are claiming responsibility. CBS News national security correspondent David Martin has the latest on this story and he joins us this morning. Good morning David. Good morning Harry. The CIA still has not confirmed the deaths but officials say eight CIA employees were killed and as many as eight more wounded. Uh, The bomber apparently just walked up to them on the base and detonated his suicide uh, vest. What he was doing on the base, how he got on the base, whether he was deliberately targeting the CIA or just out to kill Americans are among the many things still under investigation. But one thing seems clear. This was the worst single loss of life for the CIA since 1983, when a truck bomber blew up the American embassy in Beirut. As far as we know, eight employees of the CIA had been killed in Afghanistan prior to yesterday's uh, bombing. This uh, base that they were working out of, not so far from coast, which is that area around north, Waziristan, which is a Taliban hotbed in that border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan, what would the CIA have been doing there? Well, we don't know specifically what these eight were doing, but this is exactly the kind of place where the CIA would try to recruit locals who could cross over the border into Pakistan and report what they see, intelligence that could be used to uh, target predator drone attacks, uh, for instance. The Taliban, of course, would uh, know or at least suspect what the CIA was up to and in classic espionage fashion would try to Uh, turn those uh, CIA spies into double agents working for the Taliban. Whether that happened in this case, we uh, don't know yet. Mm, Terrible story. David Martin from the Pentagon this morning. Thanks so much.
1: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have Andrew Cousins on with me today, and uh, Andrew served for several years in the United States government in uh, different capacities, Uh, first uh, doing some border work, and then later doing some counterterrorism work. Uh, Andrew, how's it going, brother?
2: Doing well, man. Thanks for the invite.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Um, So you've done a number of things in your career. Um, You no longer work for the government and you've uh, written a book and you know we're going to get into all of that um, can we start in the beginning and talk about what motivates you to join the security services
2: yeah for sure um, I, uh, I wanted to follow I think primarily in the footsteps of my father he was a uh, um, he was armored cavalry in the um, Korean War era older guy um, and he uh, it was always my intent to do that, but he had made me, uh, promise him that I would go in to, uh, either OCS or go in as an officer after graduation from college. And, uh, um, and that way he would pay for college it was kind of like a little trade-off, you know, he'd pay for college outright, um, do what he can to pay for it. But, uh, um, so I'd have a degree, but, um, if I did that, then I could kind of get what I wanted to get on the back end of it. So, um, leaving, um, about to leave college senior year happened to coincide with the boom of all the agencies hiring, meaning um, FBI, DEA, uh, ATF, uh, you name it, they were all kind of um, you know doing a major hiring boon and they were um, having guys in uh, to the academy, you know with just about a bachelor's degree was all the requirement they had at that point in time. I think it was the late late 90s um obviously all that's changed since right um you know you almost need a law degree or a political science degree to get into um master's degree to get into uh the FBI so i applied to the gamut of all of those uh made it to second phase in FBI um didn't get reinvited back for the DEA uh got hired by both um the ATF and at the time it was just customs it was pre 9/11 so it was just customs and then border patrol was a was a secondary um uh, a- agency it was another agency entirely. Um, and then of course, uh, once I accepted, uh, the job with customs, that's when nine eleven happened. And of course, all that stuff kind of fell under the, uh, department of Homeland security umbrella and they s- consolidated some agencies. They got rid of some agencies. And of course the consolidation that affected me was customs slash border patrol or CBP.
1: Um, so you ended up yeah. kind of rolling into that
2: yep yep and uh that was also an exciting time there as well um and it happened <laughs> probably important to mention i missed the atf I, I, I didn't accept the atf invite but that was right before um david koresh and uh waco uh texas you can mm. remember the atf was was repelled heavily on that uh, raid there so right. um i feel like i kind of dodged that bullet but um when i went in there they were they were standing up a bunch of new uh Units, uh, including, uh, obviously, air interdiction, uh, Bore Star. Uh, I believe BORTAC was already in existence, but they were expanding BORTAC. So it was just a time of, uh, of great excitement um, in that agency. So
1: so um, I'd like to talk about some of that. Um, first, if we can start with, can you describe a little bit of what the aerial interdiction stuff was like or consisted of? <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, uh, obviously aerial platform based stuff. Um, a lot of the uh, pilots and crews, uh, that worked that side were, uh, you know, in, uh, either fixed wing or rotor wing aircraft. A lot of them were out of the border, um, stations. N- NACO station was one Southern Arizona. And then of course, uh, Fort Huachuco was another, um, a lot of A stars, you know, I think a, a Black Hawk or two, Uh, So basically light and medium aircraft for uh, the purpose of stopping um, the overflights of uh, narcotics, Um, either um, in, you know, privateer flights, um, you know, coming over the border that happened to be American and orientation or whatever the cartels were pushing um, our direction in in, in, uh, planes or or helicopters, mostly mostly planes at that point in time.
1: So... If, you know, let's say, for example, if you can talk about it, you know, if you guys like intercept the aircraft coming over, how does that work?
2: Well, usually, uh, you know, you'd, you know, try to uh, radio uh, the the pilot of the aircraft that was responsible for the incursion. If that didn't work, um, you could always call Air Force assets and Air Force assets would try to force the plane to the ground. But you basically just track it to its location, um, whether it was um it's final location or whether it was an area where they started dumping, uh, uh, their payload. <clears throat> so that whatever narcotics they had on board. So
1: it's kind of like a, uh, mousetrap,
2: uh, type, type
1: scenario. Right. And the, the cartels, they're pretty creative and, and in some ways innovative in how they attempt to smuggle things across the border.
2: Oh man. Um, <laughs> like nobody else, you know, that's what happens when you got lots of money to spend, right? You got, uh, all kinds of funding you can find new and exciting ways to
1: to do um whatever it is you want to do so can we talk about what exactly bortac is
2: yeah so bortac is kind of the uh kind of the tactical side of border patrol meaning they'll deal directly um with any kind of uh cartel incursions um obviously the cartels are well armed um come with spotters and nowadays um, obviously they come with a lot of high tech gadgetry, just like, uh, U S military or, 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 Mexican military. So, um, essentially BORTAC was established just to kind of match, uh, head on match that, uh, um, you know, that effort, um, you know, these guys would do, uh, would, coy- uh, would coyote, uh, or, you know, do uh, long range reconnaissance, um, hide sites, um, uh, you know uh, close target reconnaissance, depending on what the cartels were up to, whether that was tunneling, uh, whether that was moving, um, people or narcotics over land-based, um, uh, geog- geographical areas, um, you know, whether they were, um, uh, you know, doing any kind of, uh, um, uh, operations within a, within a town or around a metropolitan area that's, kind of where Bortak would become involved and and you know these guys were usually the tip of the spear for that kind of stuff
1: yeah I was in um this summer I was in Israel and um a buddy of mine he um he's British but he's lived there for about 20 years served in the army um in a a special operations unit and um I'd done some bouncing around I I went to Jordan for a couple days and I came back and um we were in Tel Aviv and we were having breakfast and we were just talking about different things. And he he had like a buddy who worked uh, border security. Um, and he was telling me that, so in Jordan, all, all over the Middle East, but I think they're predominantly in Jordan is a, a nomadic tribe of Arabs and they're called the Bedouins. And um, yep. one of these yep. tribes uh, apparently were big drug smugglers uh, between Jordan and Egypt. And um, and he was telling me that the uh, Israeli security or, or army unit that was there, um, you know, they're getting into like gunfights with these guys. And they, they killed a couple of them and they recovered their bodies. And these guys had like night vision and, and suppressed, you know, rifles and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's just kind of uh, fascinating to see what, what people get their hands on when they're doing some of this uh, illegal activity.
2: Oh, yeah, man. Like I said, like, that's the key uh, component there is the funding that the cartels have so they'll spend their money um on whatever it takes to give these guys the advantage so you got i mean high-end uh encrypted comms um you name it they're going to kind of come at you with it and uh it's it's interesting you know a lot of the cartels are pretty well trained now or have um components of uh you know guatemalan special forces what have you but uh you know that vortex no slouch slouch unit these guys have a lot of um former uh, seven group guys guys that have operated in the uh central and south america and stuff so they're they're quite used to the uh the lifestyle so it's uh you know it's just a kind of a chess game
1: out there right so you've um you've done the area of interdiction you worked with some of these other groups there and then um you've also done some security work for the Olympics. Um, there's a lot that goes into security for such a huge event like that. Um, can we talk about what that was like working on that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was the 2002 Winter Olympics, man. That was uh, for me. It was uh, Snow Basin, um, you know, just outside of Ogden, and it was the um, the first time since 9/11 that we hosted a, a large scale event. So at the time, I didn't know, but there was an organization called the NSSE. I believe it stands for National Special Security Events. And it's a kind of like a task force they put together. So at the time, it was a hangar um, in Mountain Green, which kind of is a small community that faces the mountain, that faces the Super G event that they were um, conducting, obviously, at uh, Snow Basin for the Olympics. And um, <laughs> within that 16,000 square foot hangar, man, you had, uh, gosh, probably like eight agencies um, at the time, which didn't all pl- play well nice to, with each other. Uh, FBI, secret Service, um, uh, CBP, uh, man I could go on and on, and everybody kind of uh, kind of shared that command center, um, had to uh, work off of each other's uh, com uh, comms channels or or you know kind of deconflict uh, at that at that from that point. And then of course, all the agencies, helicopters um, used the landing pads there as well. So um, at the time we were doing uh, helping with communications, bringing communications equipment up to the top of the hill so that they could get those uh, intertwined with uh, the existing uh, communications for the mountain. And then we were also doing um, uh, overflights, uh, security overflights and then the establishment of um, hide sites. Uh, And there was some, obviously some big names there. Um, You know, at the time uh, I wasn't involved, but uh, the CIA was there with uh, their folks, FBI, HRT. Um, I believe there were advisors from um, JSOC, at the time because nobody wanted anything to happen on American soil
1: post 9,
2: post nine eleven, 11. Right. So, um, everybody was invited to the playhouse and it was kind of a interesting, interesting time. But, um, the NSSE is what kind of gave me my springboard into, um, doing some counterterrorism work. Cause meeting those guys, a lot of them, um, you know, they were pretty seasoned, uh, operators and guys that spent a lot of time downrange, And of course, um, you know, in DC and the beltway. So, uh, good opportunity to network
1: for sure. So how long was it after that uh, Olympics that you then moved away from the border stuff?
2: So I did another, I uh, did another year and then decided I wanted to work um, closer to home. And I really enjoyed uh, the community in and around Boise, um, ended up doing some aerial based uh, wildfire stuff, um, kind of moved into the, uh, um, uh, the fire rescue uh, urban fire rescue arena too. trying to keep my medical quals current and then kind of raise them up a little bit. And, uh, in the meantime, um, I was still applying, um, uh, to different jobs, different federal jobs that were available in and around uh, the Idaho Boise, Idaho community. Um, and it was when I got an invitation to apply, uh, to an OGA program that actually I hadn't heard of before at the time, but, um, it was, uh, you know, obviously doing stuff overseas, uh, working with uh, uh, you know, um, kind of the uh, intel collection side for for uh, OGA, and um, and that's kind of how I got my my foot in the door there.
1: Yeah, I think for the most part, probably around those years and the the previous years, um, that that particular group was relatively unknown um, to the public, anyway. Um, yes. Definitely, and then of course, you know, within the last fifteen years or so, things happen and and things come out or whatever. But um, so, you know, doing that that type of work is um, is important and is vital to national security. Um, The other day, I'd I'd come across some articles online on like, I think they were like mainly conservative based platforms. Um, I kind of, I kind of pay attention to everything a little bit and just see what people are talking about. And there was just, um, I, I saw, I had seen a couple of articles and then I seen some people I'm friends with on social media sort of supporting it and backing it. And, and basically they were just admonishing the intelligence community and, um, and just bringing, and then, you know, when I, I'd, I'd written a couple of comments and, all they're doing is just talking about you know a couple of negative things that had happened over the years. And obviously there are some uh, legitimate criticisms, but um, I, I feel like a lot of the successes uh, aren't spoken about at least publicly. And um, I, I thought it was a bit unfair um, because a lot of people who work in the intelligence community uh, sacrifice a lot uh, time with family um, and, and their minds and, and their bodies and, you know, people get killed and things like that. Um, so i'd like to talk about the um the importance of having um you know security teams and and intel folks uh, in, in some of these places around the world uh, that you've been uh, as, as important as it relates to national security
2: yeah you bet i think after 9-11 all the kind of the gloves were off with that and they needed to kind of double triple um their ability to collect intel in some of the hostile environments you know in the past um you know, the security profile was pretty, pretty slim. And um, a lot of these guys uh, would go places, um, you know, because they're coming from the Cold War era, where a lot of these guys would operate uh, autonomously. Um, But there was some degree of uh, mutual understanding. But as soon as you had mix in bin Laden and and, uh, Saddam Hussein and um, what have you, you know, you're operating in a very hostile uh, region that essentially looking to not only take out um, you know, the American military or what they considered, uh, the intelligence assets, um, for organizations like OGA, but, um, you know, take out any Americans for that matter. Um, so the security profile was dramatically increased, uh, for these case officers and these, um, uh, you know, these, um, these guys that are kind of analysts or, or, uh, Uh, You know, they're kind of operating in and around the area to to help with the intel collection. So um, it's necessary to have uh, a security profile that's equal to the threat. And I think that's kind of where um, our job came in is, you know, we were provided with, um, you know, uh, mobile platforms, weapons, uh, comms. Um, basically the ability to, uh, it, it, if it was necessary or if it was available in the area to call in air power, um, uh, you know, close air support, what, what have you, and, and just make ensure that the in liaison, of course, liaise with a lot of these military units, um, that were kind of working under the same title as OGA, if that makes sense, um, doing a similar job and just, you know, utilizing all your, uh, your assets to, to get the job done. So kind of a, um, you know, not kind of a uh, uh, one-size-fits-all tool, really, or or, um, hat, but, you know, just being able to kind of um, bring to bear any uh, protective capabilities on these guys that were trying to, you know, hunt down the HVTs or these objectives, so.
1: Right. I remember, um, I read this book years ago. Uh, the guy wrote it under a pen name. He was a um, a British special boat service guy. And um, he had joined in, the, I think it was the late 70s. Uh, he had stayed in. I, I think he did 20 years. I don't quite remember. But after he got out, I think he was doing some contracting work or he was, he was working for some uh, intel agency. And um, in the book, he talked about how he had worked Northern Ireland and a lot of British special forces, um, they'll break off from their units for an extended period of time. And they'll attach to a special intelligence detachment that they worked Northern Ireland. And they would do basically undercover stuff, you know, Intel gathering. And, um, at times they, you know, they would get into gunfights and things like that. Um, but one of the things that he spoke about that made it possible to, um, to do that kind of work is that they looked like the people who they were targeting and going after. Right. And he spoke about, um, how he was in Iraq in the early days of the Iraq war. And he was doing some undercover stuff, some kind of, um, you know, reconnaissance, like low profile stuff. And it was much more difficult, not because he didn't know how to do it, but just because he stood out so much, um, and I I think that's probably part of the difference in the need for security in, in some of these hotspots. Uh,
2: spots. Yeah, yeah. I think um I, I think that uh you know, working with some of these teams, you know, some of the best guys in the business, um, for sure, um, guys that have come from combat units, uh um a lot of tier one, tier two teams, um, you know, with a lot of uh, a wide range of experience is uh you know, it's critical because the second a firefight ensues or there's an ambush or uh, IED or, or what have you, you know, you do you want guys that have been there and done that to kind of help work through it. I was, um, I was there with that team as a medic and, um, obviously, you know, performed a different role, um, than a lot of the guys did, but, um, it was still you know requirement. And then we just kind of, you know, all did uh, protective security for the, uh, for the agency's guys, but, um, you know, just, just a, a very necessary, um, as you well know from, uh, from friends of mine, uh, like Mark Geist and, and they were, um, obviously ambushed in, uh, in Benghazi, uh, Libya. Um, right. a very, very big requirement for, uh, for that kind of work.
1: Yeah. I mean that, that, that was probably, um, you know the, the the sort of worst incident that took place for uh, that particular group, um, and I mean for the country as well. You know, an, an American ambassador died, and and several other Americans were killed. Um, and and it, it's a big deal, and it just shows the the nature of how dangerous the work is. And and part of that is really what kind of threw me off when I was like reading some of these um, articles and and seeing some of these comments from people I know on on social media. Uh, about the intelligence community um, and it, it's, it's just kind of annoying because I feel like the base of it is political which is kind of weird because conservatives have always supported you know military national security type folks um, so it's kind of a weird time I guess but uh, I don't know I just found it kind of strange to to see some of that stuff you know
2: yeah, yeah, of course. And there was, uh, in my theater, I mean, granted, I was in a couple of, uh, theaters. Afghanistan was the one I can name. There's a couple other areas of operations that I can't, um, where I was d- deployed, but, um, the one in, in my theater, of course, that was the big one was the one in coast. And that was, uh, right. kind of the triple agent that, uh, basically wore a suicide vest and, and, you know, killed, you know, what a dozen of the, of, uh, people of the, of the, uh, agency's finest. And, and that was, um, a horrible tragedy as well. And obviously a, a learning experience, I think for a lot of people that, uh, you know, layers of security exist for a reason and, and you can't, um, you know, cut corners.
1: So yeah, coast. Yeah. That was a, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, uh, I forget the exact number of people killed, but I think it was around 10 or maybe a little more, but that was a mix of, um, agency folks, uh, some higher, some higher up, um, I don't know if it was the chief chief of station was killed, but, and then there were several security guys who were killed, uh, former special forces guys, uh, uh, special operations, sorry. And then, um, I think there might've been an ex cop or two that was there as well. But, um, yeah, I mean that, that, and, and that, I guess that happens from time to time, you know, people, um, make some mistakes. Um, obviously, you know, the information that I have about it is just what's been made public, but, um. From what I understand, the um, what kind of let the guy in was not the usual security protocol,
2: right? And that's that's what the uh, they were kind of in a rush to get this guy's intel because he would, um, he was providing intel that was kind of above board, and they wanted to make him feel welcome and comfortable. And um, you know, obviously, security lapses there because uh, um, some of the uh, staffers were in a kind of a rush to. To, uh, to, make, to make that happen and, and we all know how that turned out so um, not necessarily a good uh, end result but def- like I said definitely a learning experience definitely next time nobody's going to make the mistake of kind uh, of rushing somebody through security uh, just to make them feel more comfortable and more willing to give, uh, give up uh, valuable intel
1: Right uh, I think he had been um, he had been living amongst some like high value targets in Pakistan if I remember correctly and um, in fact, um, I think the one of the, the cousins of the Jordanian king was killed. In that, he was an intelligence yeah. officer. Yeah,
2: yeah, he was a, he was working Jordanian intelligence, which uh, um, you know kind of works hand in hand with us, uh, at least on the Al Qaeda side. Um, but yeah, it was a big, uh, big, big tragedy for sure.
1: Yeah, and and that's really like a perfect example of what, what I meant but basically the the successes you don't know about, but the failures you do, you know? So, um, and I I think that people should give some, some credit to, to, you know, the folks who are spending their entire careers um, trying to protect the country, you know? Um, Right, absolutely. So um, can we talk about the activity group?
2: Yeah. So the activity group is a company that was started, well, it started uh, essentially by products developed through a, uh, a, a, basically a USASOC grant that was worth uh, several million dollars because at the time, um, a a senior uh, CAG or Delta Force medic um, wanted to improve upon a lot of the Um, equipment that they use downrange and that was on the heels of an assault in afghanistan where um, they had several tourniquets um, break uh, upon application to save lives and they had some issue with some of the gauze products so the grant was set up initially through uh, delta to kind of help develop these products and due to that um, the company that um Uh, which is called RevMedics, which was initially the part of of that, wanted to um, initiate a civilian program that would be able to push um, the same components or the same type of medical equipment that was developed under this grant to um, other military units, obviously not under the uh, special operations umbrella, and um, push that uh, type of equipment to SWAT, uh, TAC Med, federal units, etc., and and that's how the activity group came about. In, in the aftermath, um, RevMedics went their own direction um, and and went for another grant and decided not to be part of the activity group. But the activity group uh, started uh, marketing, obviously those those pieces of equipment, and then started looking for other very high end, cutting edge uh, medical items that could be brought to bear on on a kind of a battlefield type wound or or any kind of mass casualty
1: incident. So, so there's several, several points to that. Um, so you, you basically, you work with the activity group and um, and then I would also like to talk about TCCC. Um, it's, it's hugely important. And is this something that you had learned and, and trained upon in your, your Border Patrol days?
2: Oh well, it it wasn't. um, It it, it didn't emerge. I think that early. Gosh, that was two thousand nineteen ninety nine to two to two thousand and four. So that was uh, that was still pretty early. In that, um, you know, I I think at the time that a guy from uh, Delta had just developed the cat tourniquet in two thousand one to improve upon a cravat, if you can believe that, which was still being used since uh, the civil war or, or, even earlier as a tourniquet measure, but, um, uh, right, teacher, right, right. yeah, but T triple C kind of came online shortly afterwards because of the, uh, of the army, uh, big army noticing the amount of battlefield, um, casualties that, that had come about simply from extremity hemorrhaging and, you know, stuff that could have been easily preventable, you know, on, on site. Um, obviously what we know now through self aid or buddy aid, um, without needing an actual medic to intervene. And, uh, that kind of set off a firestorm because, um, they were in a rush to develop equipment to support that and, uh, essentially really get this program, uh, homogenized and pushed out to every, uh, military unit. Um, even, you know, the fobs, even the people that were, uh, based on the fobs to, to, uh, to mitigate, you know, any kind of, uh, hemorrhaging and kind of increase the survivability of folks. But, um, uh, we did do quite a bit of that stuff through UG. We did live tissue training, which they used a porcine model or pigs uh, to simulate, obviously, a battlefield casualty. Um, it did add a sense of realism and, and um, it certainly added a sense of um, urgency uh, because, you know, it's, an, it's a live animal that's obviously been sedated. And, and uh, you know, you're in a rush to stabilize those wounds and transport it. Um, and get a, a passing grade at the end of the at the end of the medical evolution, but uh, um, that's when you know TCCC was a very serious, um, very uh, uh, much appreciated uh, component of uh, of deployments, and of course that spawned um, TECC, which is uh, Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, which of course a lot of SWAT teams and Tac Med teams use.
1: Nowadays. So what is the difference between TCCC and TECCC?
2: So I think TCCC focuses more on a um, kind of a battlefield mentality, Um, meaning that um, you're talking about uh, uh, less, obviously, much less of a civilian component. Um, You know, obviously, you can still be in some, um, uh, you know, battlefield conditions, uh, because, you know, two of the, two of the most important, com, uh, most important components are, um, tactical field care, which is where you're treating wounded, but it's still considered a hot zone or a warm zone at the very least. And, and, and then of course the immediate care portion is when you're um, in a firefight and got to usually apply your own tourniquet. Um, if you're, uh, if you're the victim of a gunshot wound or, or any kind of blast damage. So, um, that's. I think that's a little different. You don't have that, um, that those teeth, so to speak in T E triple C or T E double C because it's, uh, it's more of a law enforcement, um, maybe serving a high risk warrant, you know, maybe, um, you know, doing a no knock warrant as part of a task force or a SWAT team. So you're going to, it's not going to be as, um, at least we hope it's not right. It's not going to be as, uh, much of a conflagration. It's not going to be as much of a, a, a battlefield environment as it would for a TCCC
1: uh uh trained units. Right, like guys probably aren't getting their legs blown off and stuff like that. Correct. Yeah, with the implementation of TCCC uh, military-wide and, and you know, for the entire entire platoon of Marines everybody was trained on it. Um not just the medic. I forget the exact numbers, but uh there's been a substantial increase in people surviving wounds that they've received on the battlefield. I mean, more than any other war in in history, actually. And um, I've had um, Delta Force medics on before, 18 deltas, uh, Green Beret medics and and, uh, Navy corpsmen. And one thing that is a, a general consensus is that TCCC should be pushed a step further and even be taught in high schools and um, maybe even junior high. And if, if everyone knew the the basics of T triple C, you know, by the time they were 18, let's say uh, there would be so many more people surviving car accidents or, you know, any kind of accidents uh, across the States.
2: Oh, absolutely, man. I I think high school is the goal, right? I mean, uh, I think that's the, the goal of, uh, Department of Homeland Security's Stop the Bleed program is to make this as um, as commonplace as the uh, Heimlich Maneuver, right? right? I mean, remember you used to see Heimlich Maneuver posters all over restaurants. You don't really see them too much anymore because right. everybody knows how to do it. And I think that's the goal of, um, of this uh, organization because, uh, you know, you want everybody to kind of intervene when there's a um, – any kind of mass casualty incident, save lives right there before you can get, uh, medics on scene. Um, because essentially if it is a active shooter or workplace violence, um, they still, a lot of places still don't have rescue task forces, um, set up. So you'll need to wait and hold medics outside what you consider a warm zone. And that can be hours while, while police clear the building. So, um, it's a, it's a program that's, it's way past its time. Um, it just takes a long time nationally, a country our size, to implement anything like that for sure.
1: Yeah, actually, that, that's a good point that you bring up, um, where they would keep medics in in what you call the warm zone. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in, in, the, um, in the post-nightclub shooting in Orlando, yep. I believe yep. several people died because the medics couldn't go in because they considered it a hot zone. So the medics were just, just outside of that and they weren't allowed to go in and, um, and treat people. So people were basically bleeding to death, um, due to the security situation.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, in fact, the opposite happened at, uh, the inland regional complex in San Bernardino. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, uh, that was where the, uh, husband and wife terrorist team kind of took over and left behind an IED. But, uh, So that one was where, um, the, the San Bernardino SWAT team happened to be, it was a Wednesday and they happened to be training, um, uh, doing live training. So all they basically did is, is load up and roll out to the scene. And they pushed a team, a SWAT team and attack med into that building and save lives because they got in there underneath the golden hour, which is where most people will bleed out from a, an artery, a dicked artery or a severed artery. And they were able to save. I think, because I got a chance to talk to the team lead and the and the, and the TAC med, and he he said he had, I think he had tri- he had saved four lives, oh, um, wow. because they had gotten there within that hour. So and that was a good example of how this becomes really important. I think the problem is, John, is that you get uh, you get states and agencies that if if a tragedy has not happened in their jurisdiction, um, they're not motivated to shift budgetary monies to something like this. You actually almost need a reactionary type uh, um, group where, <laughs> where you need something bad to happen before you can start moving money and training and everything and implement these, st- these kind of things. Um, and that's unfortunate that we can't be more proactive.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, it is. It's, um, I mean, I look at like 9-11, for example. I mean, before 9-11, I mean, I think it was um, after the, the Lockerbie bombing, where the uh the, the aircraft uh somebody brought bombs onto the aircraft and blew it up. Uh I, I think Gaddafi had something to do with that if I remember correctly. Um but basically these guys just brought these bombs onto the aircraft in duffel bags and right. that that just shows how lacked security was and uh and then you have these groups of, of people where they're trying to figure out how they can hurt Uh, America or the West or so they're looking at where the security gaps are and they used uh, that incident where they blew up the uh, the aircraft itself and then fast forward to 9-11 you know they hijacked the plane and and flew it into buildings. so it's just kind of I mean I can't even remember what it was like flying before 9-11 you know now you got so much security and um, it's funny um, are you familiar with uh, Bill McRaven? Yep. I know a little bit about Bill. Yep. So he, uh, long time Navy SEAL was a JSOC commander at a point. Yep. Um, did a lot of work in the national security realm and he put out a, I think his second book and I just finished it. And, um, he'd been in, he'd been injured in a, uh, a skydiving training, uh, scenario. And, uh, I, I think his recovery was like a year and a half or so. It was like a long recovery. It was a pretty serious injury. So, during his recovery period, he'd been posted to Washington, D.C. This is right after 9-11, uh, to work as some kind of counterterrorism liaison for the White House. And um, they had just uh, caught the uh, the shoe bomber guy. We um, had some kind of bomb in his shoe, but I think it didn't go off or something like that. And so they ended up arresting him. And um, so it's it's kind of funny um so I, I travel quite a bit, and I'm also a photographer. So I always have gear with me, uh, you know, several lenses, camera equipment, and uh, computer equipment and stuff. So when you get to the security line uh, in the airports, you have to take your laptop out. In some airports, you have to take your camera out, and you have to take your sneakers off. And um, in his book, McRaven, he he goes uh, and in the course of the conversation he was having with the head of TSA, he writes. Um, you know, And the thing that I said to this guy next is something that, that I re- I'm going to regret for the rest of my life. And he basically had come up with this idea that people can detonate explosives through their laptops. So you had to have everybody take their laptops out of their bag. And you had to have everybody <laughs> take their sneakers off uh, before they go through the security check. Yep. Um, so anyone who travels quite a bit, you can blame that on um, Bill McRaven. <laughs>
2: Yeah, sounds about right. But uh, everything is always overemphasized uh, when it comes to the government. You know, we're still waiting for TSA to catch to catch anybody noteworthy,
1: right? Right. So. Right. Um, so you um, you also work with a group uh, called the Global Surgical Medical Support Group, or GSMSG for short. Um, yeah. They are a group of fantastic people. They do really good. Uh, selfless work. I know um, Aaron Epstein, he's the uh, the head of the organization. Uh, I, I believe you know him as well. Um, so what what kind of work have you been doing with the GSMSG?
2: So right now we were doing um, we were trying to do some um, logistics for them uh, to get vehicles in one area of operations. Um, I missed this uh, last missed this last trip uh, to uh, the Iraq uh, theater because of, uh, some family stuff. And of course I was, uh, getting my, um, working dog spun up as well. So that was a, uh, kind of a, um, a factor, uh, in, as well. But, uh, they, um, <clears throat> essentially have a couple of components. They have a training arm that helps train uh, medical and other important information, uh, to the indigenous, uh, militaries that exist there and um including medical uh, obviously but some tactical and then they of course they've got uh, doctors and, and corpsmen and nurses that help um uh, kind of work with the indigenous populations that have been disaffected by the war um, and are still kind of under the thumb of isis uh, suffered injuries or permanent injuries or maybe health effects and aaron does a great job of kind of bringing um, almost like an entire medical hospital to bear um, in some of these uh, countries, even in, in, even in an expeditionary fashion, uh, so that they can kind of give these people the same level of care that they would get if they were um, on a military base, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. You know, I was talking to, I was talking to Aaron, and um, he had worked in the, in the government in some capacity, and then he goes, one day I just decided I wanted to be a doctor. And so then he does some medical work and then he creates this fantastic organization. And um, I believe they are one of the only organizations that hires retired tier one guys um, to do to work in this sort of capacity. And um, they are the only non-government organization to work on so special operations guys who were badly injured, like they performed like life-saving surgery. Um, oh, yeah. So I think that was pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. And I think that's um, Epstein's claim to fame, you know, so much so that I think he's relied on in country um, by some units that are operating there uh, for the military. And that's um, that's a testimonial to to the strength of his character and of his organization's mission profile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just a great organization that relies totally on donations, and uh, I think that's um, that's the beauty of it is that taxpayers aren't footing that bill. It's literally um, just out of the goodness of his heart, and uh, and uh, just a, an amazing you know man with an amazing vision, um, and and a lot of guys that are willing to support it to kind of keep uh, the same lifestyle that they had um, going that when they were in. Um, in country, and it, it it does as much for the veterans as it does um, for for um, for the organization and, and for the indigenous folks. Um, it's it's kind of like a, uh, a for lack of a better word, it's kind of like a great uh, problem solver on a lot of different levels. Right. You know what I mean? So, so what was it like deploying with them? So. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's run professionally. I mean, it's a lot like when I deployed for OGA because essentially, uh, you know, you, um, you, you you depend on kind of your own monies to get in and out of there, um, by commercial aircraft. But once you're on scene, um, you know, the guys in the, uh, units that are training all the indigenous personnel are going to kind of support you, um, the way they have, um, you know, through their uh particular special operations units meaning that you know kind of watch each other's back pick each other up um uh, drop each other off uh you know just kind of do everything on a on a kind of a covert until you're on um for example in, in this case until you're on um uh Peshmerga's, uh uh base in and of itself uh, or within um uh their compound you're going to you know kind of so you're going to be self-contained and kind of keep each other, um, safe. And then once you're obviously there, you can kind of expand your uh, profile a little bit and, um, you know, look a little bit more American than you can than when you, uh, fly into these particular countries. So it's just, it's just done very professionally and, and Aaron gives everybody a lot of latitude, uh, to kind of, um, you know, resort to what they were good at when they were in the military, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're definitely good folks. Um, I've had Aaron on the podcast twice and I've had a a former Navy corpsman on who had deployed with them. Um, and I've actually considered um, taking a trip with them as a photographer. Um,
2: oh, you should, John, for sure. I mean, that's. It, it's a chance of a lifetime, man. I think um, you know just to see what these guys can do, and and to see how good this organization is at you know getting boots on ground and helping um, folks that otherwise would not have any um, any help medically is just amazing.
1: Right, and and obviously the most important factor of that is helping people and and teaching people. Who are affected by ISIS and and the security situation, but from a from a photographer's standpoint, I think it would be incredible to be able to capture what some of that interaction looks like, um, you know, through photography and and, and images and uh, kind of show that to the world, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. That's it's just a great. Uh chance to increase their funding and, and g- give them more donations and, and increase the chance for Aaron to, uh, to reach out and help more communities for sure. Right.
1: And if, if people want to get, uh, squared away with doing some donations, they can just go to their website, right? Yep. Yep. And I believe that's just global surgical
2: medical And that's uh, the easiest way to connect there. Right. Absolutely.
1: Um, okay. So you've, um, you've written a book. Um, Two of them now, actually. Right. Two books. Um, you've dealt with some some tough personal circumstances um, as, aside from, you know, th- the difficulties of deploying and, and stuff like that. Um, can we talk about some of this, walk through maybe some of your books a little bit and, and then talk about some of your circumstances?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, the book was initially supposed to be an autobiography, which was kind of designed um, by me never to be published but just to be a kind of a, a way to get my um, uh, to get my personal problems out on paper right and help uh, um, you know be my own therapist so to speak so um, that was kind of what I was intending initially on and then uh, when I did decide to publish it it was because a friend, um, who was a big, um, military supporter. She, and, and she's in the politics and everything. Um, she just thought it'd be good to get the story out there, maybe to help others. So, um, when I published that autobiography, which ended up being about 90,000 words, um, my organization flatly, uh, kind of denied, um, my ability to publish it by redacting so much of the text that it was virtually unreadable. Um, so that being said, um, I was kind of in a, the doldrums, so to speak. I just didn't feel really positive about it. Um, after I'd gone in and, and put that effort in because the publications review board at the agency sat on it for, you know, six months, so to speak. But, um, a navy friend Navy veteran friend told me to write fiction. He said, "Hey, you know I've seen it done before. It's a good way to change things, uh, protect opsec and and really get the story out there only under fictional form and and that's what I decided to do and uh, with a failed state, um, took an amalgamation, gave me more uh, 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 creative autonomy and allowed me to kind of get um, the story told through the the lens of several people's eyes other than mine. And, uh, and that was exciting. So when I wrote that, it was obviously a much shorter, uh, uh you know, 36, 37,000 word, uh, writing, but it kind of allowed me to tell a few stories. Um, but also talk about, um, the main characters and how, you know, they were plagued with, uh, some, uh, some of the same things a lot of guys come home with, you know, uh, anxiety, PTSD, uh, anger issues, um, hormonal deficiencies, uh, obviously besides, um, you know, the laundry list and physical injuries as well. So, um, kind of allowed me to talk a little bit about these guys that have issues that are still, uh, feeling the need to deploy, uh, <laughs> which included myself, right. Um, uh, just to kind of keep their heads about them. And, um, that's what they do best. That's what they love to do. It's what they know to them. It's a manageable stress. The battlefield is, uh, and so that was kind of what the gist of the first book was about you know sure it had some uh, action in there but it, it talked about some characters that were based on real guys uh, either on my team or other teams and uh, and and just really uh you know dealt with some issues and um pretty well received like i said uh, uh a case officer a uh, former case officer named mike baker uh who worked for the agency he brought it on to joe rogan and mentioned it and it kind of took off from there and, and and sold a whole bunch of copies and um uh, and actually just doing the audible for that book right now. So I failed state nice. should be available on audible here soon. But, um, are you, and then are you narrating for it? I, I, I started to, and I, I kind of about, I got about three or four chapters in and decided I hated the sound of my voice yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah. Right. That I, that I just didn't want to proceed. But, uh, um, so I, I ended up kicking it over to, uh, to a, a guy that sounded a little better on, uh, um, over recording, but, um, uh I did do a little bit of a like a 10 minute uh, uh podcast ahead of it so that uh um I can kind of discuss the book and future books and stuff like that and people can actually hear my voice uh for a little bit before the uh before the uh the narrator takes over um but yeah and then decided that it was a book that deserved a trilogy um so the second book called Relapse came out um, continues the the saga of some of these characters, Damien and Loki and some of the guys that are, um, that are on these teams and, uh, there'll be a a third book coming out as the conclusion of the trilogy probably in the next year or two, I would think from now, but, uh, yeah. So just kind of a, a good, uh, a good way to kind of tell a story and, and also maybe touch on some very sensitive subjects, right? Like PTSD and, and guys that are dealing and struggling with a lot of stuff at home
1: right and it's usually i mean if you look at like previous wars you look at um world war one world war Two. they were super kinetic and so many people were killed and i mean there were battles where thousands and thousands of people died on on right. all sides uh, but for the most part i mean the, the wars didn't last too long i mean so then you fast forward to the, and, and there's difficulty in that, right? And it's difficult to be in a battle where 20,000 people were killed. Um, and so then you, and then you fast forward to the wars from today where they are kinetic. There aren't as many people dying in a single um, battle, but it's, right. it's such a longer war. So it, And such a smaller number of people are fighting this super long war so it really it's really tiring out people and people are getting burned out um from mentally consta- yeah yeah mentally Mental, physically yeah. You know, just constantly deploying and um there was a former uh, delta force uh, operator he he talked about this on a I, I don't remember if it was for a podcast or a show and then I eventually I had him on this show and um he basically spoke about how it got to like his PTSD and everything was so bad that it got to a point where he preferred to be in Iraq fighting than (laughs) to be at home in his living room. And and that just kind of blew my mind.
2: Yeah, I I agree, man. Like I said, it's manageable stress, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's the kind of stress that, um, a lot of people who have never been there. Um, I got an anecdotal story, you know, I, I, uh, I was on a, a transport, uh, um, OGA transport going in theater with, um, an analyst who had never been there. Ivy league educated gal, you know, intelligent, capable, of course, in her own right, but it never served time in a, in a war zone. Well, um, you know, they're required to do some firearms training and have to be responsible for a lot more equipment than they would be back in Langley or back in, uh, um, the beltway. And, uh, she, you know, happened to, um, have trouble managing some of her items and, and, uh, had a, uh, a, a pistol, um, left a pistol on the aircraft and, and, um, you know, I approached her about it and, uh, she, you know, politely, of course, I tr- tried to do it as, as, uh, as friendly as I could. And, um, she's like, Oh, that's not mine. Cause she, <laughs> she was so embarrassed by the, uh, you know, by the uh, assertion, but I was like, Oh, I'm pretty sure it is. I, I think she grabbed it and, um, you know, she uh, wouldn't take it because she was just so embarrassed that you know that she had to uh, to, to uh, account for something that she left behind that was you know pretty important to her survival. And then, I- in addition, I think there were a lot of guys that were boots on ground, analysts, etc., for the first time. That uh, um, you know, first time we had uh, incoming um, indirect fire. I think at the time was rockets. Uh, we're so petrified and so worked up, and a lot of guys obviously had been in theater for so long, you just kind of stand in place or you take a knee because you don't want it to blow it up, blow it off your feet. Um, uh, but, um, you know, you're just so used to the, you know, the, the ins and outs of war that it's just not, um, uh, a big deal to you anymore. And it's the kind of stress, like I said, that's manageable. You, you prefer that stress over trying to pick out diapers at the supermarket or you, yeah. uh, you know, over trying to um, become, um, uh, you know, a civilian and deal with the rigors of civilian life. So, um, yeah, for sure. I think that's a lot of guys' assertion um, uh, nowadays and, and why, why there's such a disconnect, I think, between um, society and, and veterans.
1: Right. I mean, that, that kind of thing, being in gunfights, it's more black and white, right? It's like either I survive and you don't or you survive. I don't, or you know, we both go home and it's very simple. But, uh, you know, like you said, just doing some of the daily day-to-day stuff at home with the family or whatever could, could be in some ways more stressful. As yeah. crazy as that might sound to people who have never done any type of, um, service or been to a war zone.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you know, I, uh, since, since you were planning on talking about launching into it anyway, I think, you know, some of the issues that I had, um, contributed to, um, the untimely death of my wife, you know, she, uh, she had issues with alcohol. She was alone a lot. I mean, geez, I was deployed eight months intermittently throughout the year, um, raised our three children by herself, uh, had issues with depression. Um, I came home, had issue, anger issues, um, had anxiety, um, definitely suffered from nightmares, et cetera. Um, so I think for me, um, I was a contributing factor. I might not have grown that tree that, that contributed to her, um, or that, that plant that contributed to her, uh, death, but I certainly watered it from time to time with my own issues. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of how, uh, this, all this came about was at some point, um, she felt more of a, of a burden or more of a liability, um, than an asset to our marriage and and what have you. And, um, um, I know a lot of guys suffer that when they came home and, uh, you know, she suffered it while I was away. So, um, yeah, unfortunate, but you know, certainly, um, a, a kind of a cascading effect or, or, uh, ripple effect from the war for sure.
1: Yeah. And, 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 first of all, sorry for your loss, you know, obviously losing someone that's so close to you, like a wife, is a huge deal. Um, um, you know, I've lost close family members and it's, it's not fun, you know, and, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know that that's one of the things that people don't realize is you know events on a, on a single day have a, a a ripple effect and they they affect so many lives you know like a, a guy gets killed in combat and um you know he has a wife and two kids and his kids are young and that's going to mess with them for the rest of their life and and their wife is going to be you know devastated and and that's going to affect the relationships they have with other people and, the, you know, their cousins and their brothers are going to be affected by it. So uh, all of these things that take place, you know, they, they aren't just affecting a single person. You know, it, it really ripples across the wave, so to speak.
2: It does. It does indeed. And, 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 you know, that's that's kind of what I had to do when I was stuck at home was really um, write about some of these things uh, to get my head clear about a lot of it and to begin my transition back into uh, civilian life. I mean, you know, it's one thing to go into work and be around guys that had been in CAG, um, you know, but it's another thing to be able to exist within society and, and uh, in general and and just be a productive member. Because I mean, if you're going to be uh, torn up and and uh, and angry about a lot of the stuff that you've seen downrange, it's not going to bode well for you, your family, or for society in general. So. Um, I think a lot of guys, uh, you know, really need to find, um, programs that work best for them and, and, um, and just get used to the fact that, Hey, you know, they might not be deploying anymore, but, um, and they can be proud of their service, but they just, uh, they need to, uh, to function on a, on a, on a different level now.
1: Right. And that's such a a difficult thing for some people. I mean, uh, there's been people who are get, get out and they're, they're able to, at least on the surface, it's like a seamless transition. Um, right. And then others have a, a much more difficult time, and and that's not to say anything bad about them, because some of these people are like were absolutely fantastic at what they did, and and you know some of the best operators and some of the best um, you know people working downrange. Um, and then they come back and they have real issues. Um, like I, I know a guy, he um, he was a, a team leader at a special missions unit. Um, one of his guys got killed and then after that he just kind of went in like a, a downward spiral with, um, drinking too much and it's it's just it's, sometimes it's really difficult to to recover from losing someone uh that you were close to you know
2: oh absolutely absolutely I, I'm i the first to admit that, uh, that I spent probably a better part of a year uh questioning you know my own existence and uh who I was and, and what this meant for me, my life, my children's life, et cetera. Um, you know, I mean, that's a part of life, right? I mean, let's face it. That's, that's the bottom line, but, um, it doesn't make it any easier each time it happens. You know, you, you got to process the loss and, and, um, you know, still be able to care for yourself and your family, um, each day. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not going to, it's only going to get worse, uh, from here is what I tell people that are older, you know, or people that um, have had a certain age where they're going to start losing family members or guys in their units, or if they're still deployed, et cetera. Um, it's just going to just going to keep happening. and um, You know, it's just something like I said that uh, you almost have to live with as a as a component of life. So
1: right, I mean that's absolutely right. I mean, you it's it's part of the cycle, right? You live and then you die at some point, and um, yeah. Uh, you know you like you some people like i know people who um have had uh, sort of bouts with death like they've come close to it the medical issue, issue or something like that and um it kind of really shook them you know to their core and um and i guess to a point it's understandable you know you you do get your your um, your bell rung so to speak when you deal with a brush with death or or you lose someone close to you but um you know ultimately it is a part of life and um i think most people have a, a fear of death and um you know when when you lose somebody the the thing that sucks the most about it is like you can never speak to them again um or or you know you're not going to be able to spend time with them physically again so that that's kind of the sucky part about it and um and then you always think about the person, you know, even years later, uh, at least I know for me, you know, I, people close to me have passed away and it's like years later, I, I think about it at least once during the day, you know? Um, yeah. And, um, but I think if, if you look at some of the sort of, uh, ancient cultures that have existed in the world, um... Some of these cultures have had a very different view on death and and what it means and um uh in many ways they they celebrate the life of someone who has died versus um just mourning you know so it, there's just so many different ways you can look at it and um and I think probably uh as a society in general the way we look at it and I, I don't mean just you and me i mean just in general like it's it's probably not the healthiest way you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a guy, friend of mine, a uh, former veteran, um, uh started a, a organization here called uh, Pro, uh Shot at Dawn project and it's a totally immersive veteran uh project where um they deal with everything a veteran comes back home with, you know, not just obviously injuries, but uh both in physical and psychological, but um, you know, dealing with uh credit issues or uh drug chemical dependency, stuff like that. So It's, um, it's an all inclusive and they get dormed and stuff like that. It was a big, bold project. And I think, um, initially, uh, it was required too much funding. So he kind of, uh, scaled it down and is hoping to push it through piece by piece. But, um, you know, it's a lot of the ways that the, um, the Native Americans dealt with their braves, their warriors, you know, they didn't let them back in society. Uh, initially they had to do, I don't know, geez, I think one tribe did a couple of months, Um, these guys had to kind of go out in the wilderness and forage for themselves and kind of get, get to know themselves and, and, uh, um, you know, rely on themselves completely apart from society. Um, and then a lot of them would come back and they'd sweat lodge them and deal with the remaining issues. And then they become elders, um, within the tribe. So, um, you know, we have cheese, our, our aircraft would, would arrive within 24 hours, uh, from our AO. Uh, so I was back here buying cereal. Um, you know what I mean, for my kids within right. 24 hours or less um, and that I know that a lot of guys in, that I worked with and guys that are still in Ranger Battalion um, the same thing, right? They're back here, um, you know, some of the ones that are living off base are, are back at home within 24 hours of, of rolling out on target <clears throat> and uh, and that's a hard life to live, man that's just some difficult stuff to face for sure
1: Right, and it's it's almost like a buffer period where you you know, allow guys to, like you said, just sort of self-reflect and and rely on themselves and and figure it out before they're put back into the, into the tribe or the group. And um, you know, one thing that you know you mentioned the Native Americans or you can, you know, any sort of warrior or tribal group, um, you know, people told stories and and they you know sat around the fire and 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 spoke to each other and interacted with each other and um, and there was a support system for the warriors uh because like you know back in the day you know talking hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago when people were fighting typically the battle was you know at their gate so to speak or or uh, if a battle was lost the next battle would be at their gate so right people right. had a, a there was a certain i guess flavor to it you know a certain level of realism like this is real like if we lose this next battle we're all going to be subjugated or you know tortured and you know whatever and um, so it had it has a different flavor so there's a, a not that people don't support warfighters fighters today but um, I, I guess there's a, a different feeling when it's like I'm gonna lose everything if these guys don't win this next engagement so to speak and um, so yeah so and, and and that's another thing like I feel like most of or just about everything that we go through in our lives, it's happened in the past already. And if if you pay attention enough or you look at history enough, you can see similar situations that people have gone through and you can see what they did to kind of get through it. Um, and I, I think that's a technique that people could probably utilize a little bit more. Um, so you, you, you spoke about something interesting where people kind of it might've been their first engagement where they sort of froze, uh, once the bullets started flying. And then the guys who are more seasoned, they're, they're, uh, more calm in that situation. Do you remember what your first engagement was like?
2: Um, I was in a, um, my first time down range was in an AO that was, um, it was an Indian country. And I say that, um, mildly, um, obviously with, um, uh, uh, racial connotations, obviously, but I, it's just uh, slang for, you know, being in a, a pretty hostile area of a foreign country that um, was considered a classified location, meaning that there was no American presence in that region at the time, other than that what we brought to it. Um, but, um, you know, definitely a war zone, uh, probably one of the more hostile regions um, on the globe. And it was um, in a pretty remote area. But I think where we got lucky was there were some um, geopolitical factors in play. It was wedged between a couple of countries that had um, some uh, a kind of a, a barter system in place. And I think the reason why nothing ever really happened – we had a couple of uh, close calls, but nothing ever really went down for, for us – was because they were um, trading one item for another. And as long as nobody um, – meaning uh, the indigenous military nor us – stepped on that, uh, that, uh, cash register, so to speak of, 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 uh, trading, uh, one item for another, um, there was no issues, but the second we tried to intervene, um, or maybe search vehicles in the area, um, or interrupt that smuggling route, so to speak, then we probably would have been, uh, constantly, um, attacked or mortared, but, um, I think for me, it was just an eye-opening experience, uh, really on his inhospitable terrain, um, dealing with Indige folks that just, you could tell just hated our guts. Um, because you know, we, we, brought a uh, obviously a different factor and an unknown factor to the region. Um, and we usually dealt like Americans do, especially with the agency. We deal with a lot of things by, uh, trading, uh, money for information and, uh, that works for a while, but. It never uh, seems to, to um, bring goodwill on a, on a large scale, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's just I got to see the ins and outs of a um, the system. Uh, my first couple deployments before I had to deal with, like you said, with like bullets flying or, um, you know, any kind of uh, a real risk. Um on a, on a large scale. And then of course, uh, did another AO where that got even worse. And then of course got to Afghanistan and Afghanistan, as you well know, is a, is a pretty risky place. So, um, definitely got into some, some issues there a couple of times, but, um, you know, nothing, uh, nothing too, um, over the top horrible that, you know, I just couldn't deal with it. I think it was just, it, it, it became kind of a, um, like I said before, it kind of came, became manageable risk, and and uh, for me, or manageable stress, and you, you really start to enjoy it over time, and not so much your more tepid experience at home. So,
1: right. Yeah. So, h- how long has it been since you've separated from doing that type of work?
2: So, 2016 uh, was the last time I was deployed, um, and I did a training iteration uh, actually, I'm sorry, 2015, 20, I did a training iteration in 2016, uh, renewed my clearance, um, to continue to deploy and then just never could, you know, I got, at the time I had three little kids, there was just no way to, um, the only parent at home, obviously there's just no way to mitigate that uh, responsibility or nor would you want to necessarily. Right. Um, so for me it was just, um, a, a decision and, um, it, it made it easier to, uh, like I said, to work with a bunch of guys. Uh, including a couple, tra- a couple medics that were acting as CAG medics that were acting as trainers for the company that I was consulting for. Um, that helped a lot, um, uh, you know, getting to go to shot show and kind of do what you love to do, uh, so to speak, or, or, you know, talk about things you love to talk about and, uh, and, and hobnob with guys that, that have been there, done that. So, um, you know, that's definitely something that, um, you know, made life worthwhile for me after I got out.
1: So did you feel like doing some of the writing, uh, particularly the first bit of writing that you did that you never published, you felt like that helped you like just kind of oh, getting yeah. it out on paper and stuff?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was just, just getting the words in front of me and, and talking about the hard things, you know, I mean, um, <laughs> you got to face your own demons, right? And I certainly was a contributor. Like I admitted to, um, to, uh, to problems at home and, and just being able to write that out and see it, um, in print in front of you and know that, uh, that you really could have done better um, is a good uh, good first step for sure. So uh, I, I recommend it to everybody, even if it's in the form of a journal. It doesn't have to be an autobiography or a book. But even if you write a journal, well, the stuff that you're grateful for, um, you know, def- definitely a good uh, move.
1: Yeah, I've even had guys um, come on the podcast and, and talk about some of their their story. And sometimes it was for the first time and um once we were done they were like you know like that felt really good like i feel so much better just talking about it i'm not a therapist or anything like that but uh, i think just the the storytelling aspect of it uh sort of like the you know the, uh, our ancestors and 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 other people from previous generations did i think that does have a positive effect on people
2: no i agree i agree it's therapeutic
1: so uh, if anyone in the audience is interested in picking up your book where can they do that
2: so I've got signed hard copies, um, both uh, A Failed State and Relapse. The Cost of War are available um, at my website, and that's andrewcousins.com. Of course, my name is a little different than uh, Kurt Cousins, the quarterback, but it's uh, C-O-U-S-S-E-N-S. Or they can just uh, you know type it into a Google search. It's, uh, the ebook is available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Sony, iTunes, uh, what have you. It's everywhere, um, different uh, ebook platforms. And then, of course, the Audible should be out here within the next 30, 30 days or so for a failed state and be working on the Audible soon for a relapse. But uh, yeah, good story. Like I said, I've gotten great reviews uh, from guys both in the military and military wives, as well as some civilians that know a little bit about um, war and what have you. It's not just a shoot 'em up, although it has those components. It's got, uh, like I said, a lot of depth of character in there. So.
1: And if anyone is interested in uh, keeping up with you on social media or anything, where can they go to do that?
2: So the best place, um, and I think where I get the most engagement, is on Instagram, and and that is a failed state novel. Um, I post a lot of pictures of guys that are still deployed, uh, myself, um, you know, doing some consulting work, what have you, as well as um, uh, friends of mine that I've met along the way through SHOT Show, and, um, you know, we've met – a lot of great folks uh and pr- people you probably are familiar with like two lamb and tim kennedy and yeah. what have you so a lot of great guys that um you know haunt uh haunt the uh the uh, halls of shot show there and and uh have, have some great projects themselves going on so um just a just a great bunch of guys and, and i got a chance to like i said meet and hang out and and uh take some pictures with them and and hope potentially train with them and stuff like that so um That's a good place to go under uh, Instagram.
1: Awesome.